The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us for today's call on how Russia's power play will reshape energy markets. My guests are two energy experts from McCloskey by Opus, a fellow Dow Jones company. They are Dr. James Stevenson, Executive Director and Research Lead, and Andrew Blumenfeld, Data Analytics Director. Welcome, James and Andrew, and welcome to Dow Jones. Thanks for joining me on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be here. Happy to be here. So Europe is facing a chilly winter as Russia shuts off gas supplies to countries supporting Ukraine. Even the Eiffel Tower, I read, is going to go dark early to conserve energy. So let's start with a big picture look at what's happening. What's going on in Europe? Why is it happening? How much worse can it get? James, I'm going to start with you for an overview. Look, I think there's a, a big risk of an energy shortage. That, that's what it kind of comes down to. Uh, even before the war, energy availability was tight, particularly for natural gas in Europe and uh, as a function of things like cold winters. Uh, and I'm sure that played a role in Putin's thinking uh, when he launched the invasion. But certainly since then, uh, we've seen extremely high prices for natural gas, for coal, uh, and then the flow through to electricity. Uh, that's impacted things like industrial output as you know, certain steel makers can't make money at high power prices. Um, the risk though is actual shortage of energy as we head into the winter. And so we're seeing governments doing things like uh, encouraging uh, lower demand, people keeping their thermostats at levels that consume less energy. Uh, but the risk is that if we have a cold winter, or particularly if we have a cold and long winter, uh, that, that we'll get very tight uh, in availability of fuels. So, Andrew, can the U.S. ride to the rescue here and export energy to Europe to make up for what Russia has taken away? So the U.S. is somewhat constrained in terms of the amount of energy it can provide to Europe. Uh on natural gas, we have close to 13 billion cubic feet per day of LNG uh, export capacity. Uh, and most of that capacity right now is running pretty full. Um, and there's only one new unit that's due on by the end of the year uh, and nothing really uh, until late 2023 through 2025. There's just three new projects at that point. So the ability to export more natural gas is constrained. On the coal side, uh, we are exporting quite a bit of coal into into Europe at this point, but still we're also constrained there given port, port capacity issues, uh, railroad capacity issues, and even at the mines. So there's a whole host of, of issues that's going to uh, limit the amount of coal that the U.S. can send into the European marketplace. So what does the crisis mean for gas prices in the U.S. and Europe? 
I, I know you showed me a chart the other day that was quite astounding looking at how the prices had diverged. Maybe you can walk us through some of the history and sure. take us to the present moment. So right now in the U.S., as I looked at it this morning, the uh, primary price point, the Henry Hub natural gas, is trading you know 680 to 690, and it's been bouncing around in that range for most of the morning. Uh, this is on a million BTU basis. Uh, right now, the price into Europe, and I'm marking this at the uh, tidal transfer facility, the Dutch TTF as it's called, is $158 uh, per megawatt hour, uh, excuse me, 158 euros per megawatt hour. And the equivalent to back to the US uh, metric, which was dollars per million, would be about $45.50. So it's almost the price of natural gas is almost six times right now uh, in Europe what it is in the U.S. And I also want to remind you that the U.S. price at $6 is also quite high from where we've been mm -hmm. you know, prior to the pandemic, for example. And what do you think will happen if the crisis worsens? If we have a severe winter, prices in going into, into the European marketplace are certainly going to move higher. Uh, at this point, they've actually come off a little bit as storage levels in Europe have have filled up in anticipation for this winter. But the issue is in, in Europe, they rely so much on gas, excuse me, on natural gas delivered by pipe, um, principally from Russia. And of course, that's been cut off mostly at this point. There is still some flowing. Um, the other sources of gas, including uh, Norway and the North Sea and and other other avenues for gas to get into Europe are pretty much tapped out at this point. So if we have a severe winter, there is a very distinct chance that, that natural gas supplies and the ability to run particularly the residential sector, the industrial and the industrial sector are going to become quite constrained. And this is the problem that we're looking at uh, that could materialize later this winter. Which, of course, doesn't bode well for the European economy at all. Absolutely not. So let's go back to coal for a moment. Is it a good time to be bullish on coal producers given the limited supply? James, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it is. And they are enjoying the best prices that they've enjoyed, or that, I mean, ever. Uh, coal prices, uh, <laughs> if they're not at a record level now, they've been at records over the last three months. Uh, coal is a very difficult sector to invest in anyway. It's, it's uh, you know, many investors uh, simply won't, touch it. Uh, and so those who have, I think, have made very good returns. Producers have been, of course, making good money. Um, many traders have been making good money. Uh, prices, we do expect to stay high. And, and really, gas is the driver behind that. Uh, Andy pointed out, we really don't have much by way of new LNG uh, liquefaction capacity. So moving gas into a ship, so you can take it to Europe. We don't have much of that coming online until 2025-26. Uh, Europe is building a lot of regasification where you take the ship gas and you turn it uh, back into um, into actual gas for, for consumption. There's a lot of that being built, uh, but really that adds to demand, right? So it, it means strong pricing for a few years until we get that extra wave of supply in a few years. So really anyone in the in the uh the fossil fuels that are used in electricity generation so natural gas and coal uh i think you're going to have a very strong price environment for a few years 
So if we're reverting to coal, doesn't that undo some of the energy transition or delay it even further? It sounds like a giant mm -hmm. pollution problem in the making. It, it does. And we're expecting that in Europe, uh, there'll be about 220 million tons of extra coal burn this decade because of the war. Uh, and that amount, that's north of uh, half a billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent uh, that will be emitted. Uh, not to mention if you move more gas by LNG, there's a there's a small amount of leakage from LNG vessels. Uh, now, some of that's offset by lower gas generation, say. Um, and certainly, you know, recently wind generation in Germany has been very strong, right? But, but this is kind of the energy transition delayed or postponed a little bit. Um, the European Union released a plan uh, earlier this year called Repower EU. Uh, and their upfront statement was, we understand that if we're utilizing more coal, uh, we're going to be emitting more in the near term. And our plan is to accelerate the decline later uh, to offset that. But but certainly in the near term, there's significantly more carbon being emitted. So we talked about the US and Europe, but there is the rest of the world out there. Where does Asia fit into all of this? I think Asia uh, will could potentially be on the downside of the tight LNG market. So Europe is able to pay up for LNG and pass through that cost uh, in a competitive power market. Uh, if you're in a if, if you're a country that doesn't have a competitive power market, perhaps has fixed electricity prices, uh, your incentive will be to simply not buy LNG. So any shortage will more, much more likely manifest in other parts of the world, certainly from 2023 onwards, once we do get this extra ability to bring gas into into the EU. But certainly uh, Asia, you know, these are global markets, LNG and, mm -hmm. and coal are global markets, and they will be uh, managing high prices of both gas and uh, LNG and coal, uh, I'd say through 2024. Yeah. So what about nuclear fuel and alternative fuels? We haven't talked about those. Is there a role for them to help close the gap? Let me speak to that from the U.S. perspective. On the sure. nuclear side, it's uh, we only have two units that are under construction, and they've been under construction for more than 10 years at this point. They're down in Georgia. Uh, we're also retiring nuclear units. It's it's because of the uh, long experience development time and the expense of building new, new nuclear at this point. Um, in the U.S., it's, it's as I've been saying, it's constrained on like a number of things. So uh, nuclear generation right now has actually dropped off a bit from last year, um, as we've seen in a retirement up in Michigan. But at this point, um, until those two new units come on in, in Georgia, we don't believe that nuclear is really going to have a big role to uh, contribute, at least to the U.S. power sector. But in terms of renewables, uh, we are building significant number of new wind uh, wind farms, as well as uh, you know solar solar uh, generation facilities. Um, the issue with the renewables is, at this point, it's uh, it's unpredictable. Um, it's you get you know the wind doesn't blow or the, maybe the sun doesn't shine uh it's intermittent power it's important um and it's a growing component of the u.s power sector but until we can actually manage that power through more transmission uh battery storage etc it's still going to play a minor role 
um, until we get to a point where uh, we can actually rely on that day-to-day um, -day and hour-to-hour, -hour, most importantly. James, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I think globally, nuclear is interesting. Uh, it has a bit of a political issue in countries like Japan because of Fukushima, uh, I guess, 10, 11 years ago. Uh, and so there are still nuclear units that are offline as a result of that uh, and much stricter safety. And it increased the capex cost of nuclear uh, globally, really. Yes. Uh, nuclear is clean in a carbon sense. It also avoids supply chain issues, which feels like every single commodity and good uh, in the world is suffering under supply chain right now. The challenge is, and I think this does uh, perhaps support uh, nuclear in the medium term. In the short term, it's just far too long to build to help in the kind of current European situation, except to potentially keep current nuclear online where it might have otherwise been retired. All right, let's go back to the U.S. for a moment. You mentioned that there are certain constraints on LNG production and uh, transportation in the U.S. Can you walk us through that a bit more, Andrew? Tell us what's going on here. So the LNG is um, actually the, the operating uh, facilities, and there's eight of them in the United States. Um, most of them are located along the Gulf of Mexico, uh, except for there's one on the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, they are operating fairly well, except for one. We've had uh, the Freeport LNG facility down in Texas suffer a fire a couple months ago. Um, that runs about two, roughly two billion cubic feet per day. So it is a meaningful, meaningful size facility. Mm -hmm. um, they are expecting that to return to partial service. Uh, at least that's the latest word is in, in November. Um, and then back into full operations in 2023. Uh, but outside of the, the, the facilities that I've mentioned, there really isn't going to be much more developed, at least to address the immediate concern. Now, uh, longer term, um, there's going to be more uh, LNG facilities. There's about 5.7 billion cubic feet that are, um, that are you know, in the planning stage. Um, and by 2020, 2025, we'll be close to 20. Uh, billion cubic feet per day. On the coal side, uh, we've had a number of, of, of issues this year. We had the supply chain things that James has already mentioned. But uh, in addition to that, we've had labor problems. The coal mines have had a difficult time uh, staffing up. Uh, and this goes through from 20, really since really 2020, since the pandemic. Um, and getting materials and, and parts, you know, for the mining operations. Uh, and another big constraint has been actually moving the coal from the mines to the markets. Uh, the railroads in particular have been having a very difficult time uh, getting, uh, you know, keeping keeping staffing at, a, at an appropriate level. Um, their staffing levels haven't improved all that much since the, since the depth of the pandemic. So mm -hmm. they are trying. Um, performance is slowly, and I call it a creep. Um, it has been improving, but is it enough to actually address the, the immediate problems? That's that's to be determined. And if we do run a risk, even in the United States, if it is a severely cold winter, that uh, we could be looking at some energy shortages here as well. So it's, it's to be determined, 
Uh, right now, the, the general trend is that coal production is improving. Um, the rail performance is improving, but uh, is it fast enough? That's yet, we'll, we'll find out here in the next few months. It's a lot of things you have to watch there. Certainly. To keep track. So two more questions from me, and then we'll go to some listener questions which have been coming in. We encourage everyone to type in questions now, whatever on your mind. So there's been a lot of talk that Europe has built sufficient natural gas supplies to get through the winter. Do you think that's the case? And what could go wrong if not? Look, uh, yeah, gas inventories uh, are above the five-year average. Uh, they've paid a lot of money to buy that gas, uh, but it certainly has built a buffer. Coal inventories are strong as well. Uh, and and it's worth noting they were very low before the war started. So uh, they have built a good buffer. The, the challenge with winter is winter... Winter is when your demand is most variable. So you not only have, uh, in the summer, people might turn an air conditioner on uh, or not, but in the winter, first of all, the winter can be long uh, and a long winter will rapidly draw down gas inventories. And then it can be cold, of course, as well. So the risk is if we have a long cold winter uh, and some climate forecasters are expecting a cold one, uh, then we will pull down those inventories quickly. I think there is a notion, you know, we, there is definitely work being done, done on the demand side to minimize gas use. Uh, and then, I mean, some interesting anecdotes we hear, there's apparently a logging boom in Europe where people are uh, cutting down more trees to make sure that if they have a fireplace, they can burn them. We're also hearing about uh, people opening up walls where they had covered over a fireplace 20 years ago um you know which is kind of the brute force way to stay warm but you know that's kind of the practical reality of uh of managing uh, that risk for the coming winter that's pretty amazing when you think yeah. about it so and, and that's a lot of carbon of course you burn timber yes. in a fireplace that's probably the worst way uh, yeah. in terms of carbon emissions so let's look ahead to say 2024, 2025, 26. We're going to have more supply on the market. We have no idea where the war is headed. What do things look like for the energy markets from your perspective? Look, I think uh, very different flows. Uh, and in some ways, a you know, people are starting to use terms like trading blocks again, right? Which we haven't, you know, in sort of a globalization you know, the globalization direction we've had for the last few decades, that term has faded a bit, but we're starting to hear a bit, bit more about that. We will have a lot more gas going from the United States to Europe. Uh, now, people have talked about how Germany in particular created this sort of geopolitical vulnerability by uh, having a lot of gas come from Germany. From Russia. Uh, uh, from Russia. Uh, and, and, you know, to a degree, they'll be, they're going to be exchanging that geopolitical reliance uh, towards the United States instead. Uh, I think post-2025, the current situation will be passed. Uh, but it's worth saying, in, in coal, it's very difficult to invest. And we've been talking for a decade about how underinvestment will ultimately drive high prices. So, you know, people who have invested in US coal equities, for example, have done, certainly beaten the market in the last couple of years. Uh, and natural gas, I think, while having a bit of a better public perception, uh, you know, you could call it natural coal as well. 
Uh, but natural gas, uh, I think, is also entering that phase where it's getting a, a little di more difficult over time to invest in. Uh, and I think, you know, over time that speaks to high prices for fossil fuels and, and you know, the flow through to the investment environment. Which, of course, will complicate the Fed's efforts to bring down inflation. But yes. we'll deal with that on Monday's yeah. call. Right. <laughs> what is your longer term forecast for the energy markets? Where do you see things going in the next, say, three to five years? So we actually see this. We, we really need to get through this winter. Um, and this is going to be it's, it's critically important to what the future looks like. But once we get beyond this winter, we think that the supply side, you know, there will be adjustments made. Uh, we'll start to move towards more normal, but it's going to take a long time, a lot of investment. Uh, and that's why we think it's sort of a slow road. Now, of course, much of this depends on what happens with the Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, and that's at, at this stage is highly unpredictable. So assuming that the war drags on and there's a good chance that it will uh we think that it's we're going to still contain uh, remain in a in a tight energy situation for quite a while uh, but it does start to ease as investments get made in such things as more lng regasification facilities in europe uh, more um, oil and gas production outside of of russia um, but even having said that, and you talked about that, you, you hinted at this earlier, just, I mean, recent news is uh, OPEC plus cutting 2 million barrels of oil per day has had a ripple effect across everything. Uh, what that has done is it's raised international oil prices. It's raised oil prices in the U.S. And ironically, uh, within the U.S., because the U.S. is constrained to move natural gas offshore, it's actually bringing natural gas prices down because as oil prices go up, it provides an incentive for oil production. Um, and when you produce more oil, you also produce more associated natural gas, and that actually increases the natural gas supply. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd inverse relationship from where it had been historically, but uh, at this point, we will see uh, how this, this plays out with this latest cut and what it really means for the US side of the, of the picture. Sounds like higher energy prices for a while, though. Yes, it does. All right, let's go to some listener questions. We have a very engaged audience today, lots of questions. So we'll start with this one from Adrian. Which allied countries have the right type of crude and diesel to replace Russian exports? We talked a bit about the U.S. Are we overlooking anyone? Yeah, look, I think the, uh, you know, we're not oil experts or refining experts, but I uh, I think there's a bit of a scramble right now to replace Russia. And, um, you know, if if the spreads work, uh, you know, create the products that people are after, I know diesel prices have been crazy high, uh, higher than, much higher than uh, gasoline. Um, in terms of countries, I yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to offer, to be honest. All right, let's uh, move on to Jacqueline. She says, assuming the conflict between Russia and Ukraine ends this year, how many years do you think it will be before the situation of high energy prices in Europe would right itself? 
How long will the crisis continue? This is where it's interesting. I I don't we we talk about this uh, you know in our methodology. I mean, one of our base assumptions is that the war continues at least into next year. But if it did end in the near term, and it didn't bring a change to the Putin regime, I don't think it changes a whole lot because uh, you know we've had the public has seen footage of hospitals being shelled, maternity hospitals, and things like this. And I don't think an end to the war will suddenly end sanctions um directionally it would probably improve fuel flows but i think it would be at least a few years afterwards and it would take a lot of assurances which i don't think are realistic uh i don't and and there will be a sense i think also if if putin is still around that uh you know just of trust you know so i think it happens if putin is overthrown karen has asked that question that's a great question too, and I'm, I'm definitely not a geopolitical analyst, but you know we've seen changes in leaders in you know during the Soviet years, and the the new leader wasn't necessarily more moderate than the one who left. So um, you know I think the world will proceed with caution, and also we, when trade flows change, they don't always change back. So we've had a trade war between Australia and China for two two or so years now. Uh, and feedback we hear is that from sellers, you know, people who used to sell into China as well, we've created new markets. We're happy to, to send our product to those instead. And, you know, these sellers are everything from coal to wine and lobsters. Um, but you know, if, if that trade war were to end, it doesn't suddenly mean those sellers will go straight back. And in the same way, I think even if European governments were open, more open to Russia, it doesn't mean the, the end user, you know, European utilities say will suddenly uh, go back to their Russian suppliers. I think that it's just real. I think just to add to that, it's it's a diversification side of strategy. So you do need, you know, do you want to go ahead and put your eggs back in that basket again? And I would I would argue that looking at uh, how things have developed over the last year or two, I don't think that countries are going to be wanting to put themselves into that same situation in the future. So we're going to have dislocation for quite a while, it seems. I agree. So, all right. Do you see Heiko asks any hope of a change in U.S. energy policy, presumably toward more fracking and more exports of energy products? I would have to say uh, probably not. Um, at, at this point, um, the the issue of fracking and uh for, for example, the state of New York uh, prevents fracking um, as it is being done right now in neighboring Pennsylvania. Um, in terms of, of fracking and environmental policy, which is really what we're coming to, uh, I don't really see an expansion. Uh, there have been some efforts to increase the number of permits allowed for, uh, for drilling, uh, but there's going to be some resistance if that drilling is going to take place on federal property. Uh, in terms of coal production, um, the U.S. government right now has pretty much uh, closed off any new permitting on, on federal property. Um, in terms of development on private land, I think that's still, that's still going to move forward, but there's still a very large hesitancy to do a greenfield project these days. Um, you know, as James mentioned before, you know, the investment side and especially in new capacity and capacity to produce thermal coal 
um, is almost non-existent at this point. There's very few projects at this point. So uh, and unless something happens, you know, drastically in the next, uh, even more so in the next few months um, or years, we don't really see that picture changing. You know, further to that is the demand for coal in the United States um, is expected to decline as power plants are retired. So there's still a large slate of plants that are on the retirement list. Um, given the situation we've had over the last year, we've seen that some of those retirements get delayed, but it's still a small piece of that. And then the delays have been fairly short term. Um, and we think that there's that trend is going to continue uh, as the policies in the United States have still are still pretty much moving toward, uh, I mean, away from coal and ultimately away from natural gas toward a, a more of a renewable future. But I think the technology needs to catch up. Um, and I'm, that's the part that worries me the most is that we've, we have moved so far so fast um, that energy reliability has, has suffered. Yeah, and I agree with everything Andy said. And I think that reliability mm -hmm. point, you know, can't be understated. But I agree with him. I think the re reliability is much more, you know, on the agenda and being discussed. Uh, you know, people are concerned about availability of low cost energy and they're experiencing a you know, very high cost energy. But I'm inclined to agree with Andy. I think when kind of push comes to shove, I don't see governments changing things a whole lot. I think we will get prolonging of coal plants. Uh, because they're in the ground, they're incumbent, they're there, you know, companies may retire them a couple of years later. But I don't see big sweeping changes to energy policy off of this. We have a question about coal stocks. This may be beyond your purview, but I will throw it out there from Stan. He notes that coal companies are selling for very low price earnings multiples. Can you see any argument for the prices of coal, coal stocks to increase? I would have to say there is a chance for them to increase. Uh, the, as I said before, there's not really development of new properties. So mm -hmm. anything that they have um, operating at this point is going to see you know fairly high utilization rates. Um, and the market is so at this point is is unpredictable in terms of what could happen. And I, I keep coming back to this winter and I do so intentionally because I think this winter is, is really quite critical. Um, but beyond that, there is some some room. There are some companies that operate quite well uh, and highly efficient operators um, that have a, a good amount of property in their portfolio uh, that is permitted or near, per, uh, near permit completion. Um, that they can expand into. So I'm talking about their, their existing reserves. Uh, so I think that there are some, some of the operators out there that have a, have an opportunity to even expand from where they are at this point. And I will say this, that given a many years of, of low returns on the, on the coal side, um, the last few years has really helped these companies in terms of improving their balance sheets. A plus for sure. We had a question from Ian. He notes that Germany has its own gas reserves under the ground, but has chosen not to frack. Is there likely to be any change in 
the stance among European countries toward fracking? Uh, look, brilliant question. Um, and I'd even broaden it. I think we are seeing globally there, uh, we hear the term onshoring uh, floated around where we've had these years of globalization and now com uh, countries are starting to look, this started during the pandemic when uh, you know pandemic hit China and suddenly supply chains out of China were truncated and we're still dealing with chip shortages and semiconductors and things. Uh, and so we've seen a move, you know, to move, for example, chip production here to the United States. Um, and so in the energy space, I think there will be efforts to push energy production onshore in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, for example, you know, Germany has large reserves of uh, lignite, which it still mines, and, you know, we would expect those to stick around. In terms of fracking, I, it's a it's a political hot potato, and and mm -hmm. I, this kind of comes back to that previous question, where I I don't think there'll be sweeping changes in energy policy, um, and I think they can secure adequate gas from the LNG market, but it's going to take a few years. But it, it's a good question, and they should. I I hope that every government in the world is at least looking at this and seeing their vulnerabilities. And weighing the pros and cons of you know continuing international trade versus uh, you know domestic production, which has also benefits you know, for things like employment. All right, we're going to run a little over. I think we've already run a little over, but we have a lot of questions today. Richard asked if one of you could please touch on hydrogen and the potential there as an energy source. Uh, yeah, I can touch on it. I'm, I'm not an expert, but certainly uh, hydrogen has applications uh, both in kind of thermal uses, so burning as a fuel, um, also has applications in steel making. Both of those are pretty nascent. Um, and the other issue that hydrogen deals with is you can create it you know, using uh, fossil fuels, which is either referred to as gray or uh, blue hydrogen, or using uh, carbon neutral or you know, renewables primarily, which is referred to as green hydrogen. Um, Availability is thin uh, and a concern I have about hydrogen is I feel like I hear more about applications for its use than I do about projects to produce it, particularly to produce green hydrogen. Um, I think it is it is part of the energy mix, um, you know, 2030s and beyond for sure. And at, at least in consideration, it, it will be a competitive playing field. It'll be up against things like utility scale batteries in the power sector. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely part of the conversation. What does this whole conversation mean for U.S. gasoline prices? For gasoline prices. So it's with right now with uh, West Texas Intermediate pricing, you know, a little over $90 a barrel. It's up from where it was just. Not that long ago, it, it actually troughed down uh, to about $74 a barrel. So it's on its way back up. As we understand, uh, OPEC Plus is looking for roughly around $100 barrel marker. Um, so this does mean that, you know, unless the U.S. can produce itself into, you know, to adjust for that supply loss, uh, it does mean that gasoline prices most likely are heading back up again. All right. I think we've got one more question from Mike. He wants to know who are the likely future customers of Russian oil and gas, assuming that European buyers 
pivot toward the U.S. and other suppliers? Uh, we've already seen India. Uh, India mm -hmm. didn't take a whole lot of uh, Russian crude, at least until uh, uh, until the war started, and now they're taking quite a lot. Uh, India's taking a lot of Russian coal as well. Uh, the challenge with gas is that Russia pipes it. So, you know, if you can't move that gas uh, somewhere, uh, you presumably have to produce less. Um, but certainly we've seen for crude and for coal, India has really raised its hand as a, as a sizable market. And India is a country that is kind of net short energy. You know, not nothing like, say, Japan is, but, uh, you know, they have a lot of domestic coal production, but they don't have much domestic gas. Um, so, you know, you, you hear pretty regularly, we've had them already this year, blackouts in India. Um, and one way India can manage that is by bringing in low cost uh, fossil fuels from Russia. Uh, and, and they are low cost. We're seeing Russian fuels being offered down well below market prices uh, for other sources. So India is a big one. And then uh, certainly, uh, you know, we talked a lot of utilities in Asia and other than Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, most countries are still open to taking Russian product. Um, and uh, yeah, those are probably India and, and Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, China as well, but very variable by product. So they, I don't think will be a big off taker of coal, uh, but they'll certainly be interested in other commodities that are coming out of, uh, out of Russia. Is that because they produce enough of their own coal? Because they produce and, mm -hmm. and also the whole carbon story. I think, uh, yeah, China has a lot of coal production and they really, uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to mitigate carbon. They have their carbon neutrality goal for 2060. Uh, ultimately, they want to move towards. They'll probably take Russian coking coal. It's a coal that's used for steelmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to have to leave it there today. This is a rich topic. Andrew and James, I want to thank you. We certainly have to have you back on Barron's Live. Yeah, it would be a pleasure. We'd love to enjoy it. Yes. Subject is not going cold anytime soon, for sure. No, it is not. No. The winter may be. At any rate, I want to thank you again. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And thanks for your great questions. Please join us again on Monday for a look at the week ahead in financial markets on Barron's Live. I'll be speaking with Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer of the wealth management firm, Crescent. And we'll look at how to ride a tumultuous market, not only in the next week, but for the next 10 years. Jack has a lot of thoughts about that. Until then, everyone, stay well and have a great weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.